Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. One of the most interesting and usually frustrating parts of parenthood is when parents have to begin feeding their children by hand. And at that point, man, spoon feeding just becomes such an interesting process because here's this baby who's only had to consume fluid and now you're starting to introduce thicker things to them like pureed baby food or cereals or eventually, right, really mashed up things like potato and, you know, meat and things like that, peas. And I just remember when our girls were little, just the adventures we would have every mealtime, man, putting them in the high chair, taking their clothes off, covering them with a towel or a bib, and then getting ready to almost kind of felt like you're like actually preparing for battle. Like, how am I going to get this food from the bowl into your belly? (laughs) You know, because as babies and young toddlers beginning this next part of their journey, they don't know. They've never had to do this before. And usually parents have never had to do that either. And so we try all kinds of tactics and the airplane and distracting them, trying to keep them from getting more on them than what actually gets in them. And it's just, you know, looking back and thinking about it, it was so fun. But as you think about the idea of spoon feeding, what would it be like for our girls who at age one and two needed us to put them in the high chair, prepare the food for them, mash it all up, maybe in a blender or buy it, you know, pre-prepared that way. And you have to bite by bite, little bit by little, put the spoon in their mouth, help them to get it down, make sure they're okay, wipe their mouth, and then do another bite. What if that same process had to be done when they were 21 or 22? What's normal in immaturity becomes abnormal in immaturity. And now please don't hear what I'm not saying. I totally understand and recognize that there are people with physical or mental situations that require them to have the assistance of somebody else in feeding them. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. What I am saying is God has created a process of growth and development in human beings where in the beginning, We need assistance, but as we grow and develop and mature, we become autonomous. We can do it on our own. Right now, those same girls of ours that used to need to be spoon-fed are now able to prepare their own meals by and large, and most of the time have no problem getting the, the big pieces of food broken down into smaller pieces using a fork and a knife putting it in their mouth, chewing it up, and knowing when's the right time to swallow, what's the right consistency. They know how to do all of those things. Now, every once in a while, we bump into a moment where 
I have to help maybe, or my wife has to help cut up a piece of meat, or um, if we're in the kitchen now, they're, they're learning how to cook their own food, so we have to help them with, you know, learning how to use knives, the, you know, kitchen knives the right way, and how to handle the oven and the stovetop, but they have made a lot of progress from being age one or two to age 12 and 13, 14, and these teenage years, and the goal is by the time they reach adulthood, they are mature enough to do things independently. You see, the goal is to move from immaturity to maturity, from being dependent on somebody to being independent and being autonomous and being able to live in liberty and freedom to know how to make wise decisions in the freedom that they have. And you're like, James, that makes total sense. What are you talking about? What's the point of this? Because we expect that of people as they mature physically, we expect it of them as they mature mentally. I mean, think about all the things that we do for children to help them understand. I mean, I must have looked absolutely silly when you're pushing the buggy around the grocery store, helping my girls understand this is milk. This comes from cows, right? This is butter. It comes from milk. Like, like this is the process of you see this food here in the grocery store. This is where it comes from. This is how you purchase it. All of these life things I don't do that with them as teenagers and push them around the buggy and say, hey, this is milk. It comes from a cow. Right? They know those things now. And eventually the goal when they're adults and mature is for them to be able to go to the grocery store and mentally be able to make wise decisions with their finances when they shop. I mean, these are processes of maturity and we know how to measure that maturity. We have benchmarks along the way. Because nobody gets frustrated at a six-year-old who doesn't know how to cut their steak, but we might get frustrated if they need to be spoon-fed. Why? Because a six- or a seven-year-old is in the middle. They've hit certain benchmarks, but they have not reached full maturity yet. The point I'm getting at is while we do this for people mentally and physically, we do not do this spiritually. People who come to a faith in Christ, who give their life to Jesus, who are born again, right? When Jesus encountered, you know, the religious leader Nicodemus, he tells him, hey, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus wrestles with this idea. And Jesus explains that a person is born physically of water from their mother's womb. But because we're born with a sin nature, our selfishness that we are just created, or we were came into the world with, right? It's because of because of the you know genetic disposition for sinfulness and selfishness we inherited from Adam and Eve, that now we have to be born again spiritually to a new nature, and the spirit has to be born again in a new life. But once that happens. We stop really paying attention and helping to grow towards maturity. It's like the person who has a newborn baby and says, hey, you're just born, and no matter what your age is, I'm still going to do all of the work for you. I'm still going to change your diapers. I'm still going to put your clothes on you. I'm still going to do your laundry. I'm still going to spoon feed you all of your meals, no matter how old they get. And in the same way that it would be abnormal and awkward in our understanding to say, here is a 41-year-old person who still needs mom and dad to come over and put their clothes on them, you know, and to feed them and to make decisions for them. The same way that that would be awkward, it should be just as awkward in the spiritual world, but we don't do that.
And the reason for that are, 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 are numerous, and we've talked about some of these before, that, that because of the Death of God movement that came in the 1890s to America from Europe, the Great Depression of the 1920s combined with the, you know, Scopes trials that took God out of our schools, also in combination of the, you know, um, evils that America witnessed during the many wars of the 1900s, we began to focus on heaven. As far as the church goes, our focus left this earth because earth is terrible, and we began to focus on life in heaven. Earth is terrible, focus on heaven. Make converts, get born again, and then just wait. Twiddle your thumbs and endure the terrible life you have now so that your heavenly life will be better. And we've talked about all that numerous times, but my point is that's the why behind the what. And we have focused so much on making converts, we forgot to make disciples. We have helped people get born again, and through the process of, of, of the Holy Spirit and God and, and all the work that God does, we're just part of the process. People are spiritual babies, and they never grow up. As a result, they have no maturity. They're completely dependent on a pastor, minister, Bible teacher, whatever, to tell them what the Bible says. They can't read it for themselves. They can't decipher it for themselves. They can't put it in its proper context. They don't have a depth of theology and doctrine and knowledge and relationship with God. They are just dependent on being spoon-fed day after day, week after week, year after year. And you end up with people who have been following Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years, but they're still spiritually immature. And we don't look at that and measure our maturity when it comes to our life in the spirit and our relationship with God. We don't measure our maturity. We're just content to believe that it's perfectly normal for a follower of Jesus to need to be spoon-fed like a baby, to have all of our decisions spiritually made for us like a child, instead of expecting followers of Christ to grow and develop and mature. And today that's what we're going to talk about is how do we measure maturity? How do we look at our lives and say, I am growing, I am developing, I am becoming more autonomous, not because we want to be separate from God, not because we even want to be separate from the church, but because we live in a day and age now, just like Christians have always lived, where there are many different teachings. Some of them are really good. Some of them are really dangerous. There are numerous, very popular, well-positioned, very well-known and influential leaders in the Christian faith today that teach bad teachings. They teach incorrect doctrine and they lead people astray because they're immature and they have to depend on these other people to tell them what right looks like rather than going to God and his word to decipher it maturely for themselves. How do we do this? How do we move into maturity? The good news is we're not the first Christian community that has needed help with this. Christians throughout the history of the church have wrestled with this, but we have a very interesting example in the life of the church community in the city of Ephesus. And if you've got your Bibles, I would love for you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And in this context, right, we always want to make sure we read the Bible in context. And to do this, I follow the pattern that we've done numerous times is the five A's of context. We always want to be careful to twist our beliefs to fit the Bible. We never want to twist the Bible to fit our beliefs. And so I follow these five A's. The first A is author. Who wrote this text? 
most scholars agree, though some debate it, most scholars agree that the, we call the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church community in the city of Ephesus, was written by the Apostle Paul. This letter is part of what we call the prison letters. The Apostle Paul had been arrested for the work he was doing to spread the gospel to plant church communities throughout the, the Roman Empire. Because for the first 300 years of the faith, Christianity was illegal. Until the time of Constantine, it was illegal to be a Christian. And depending on what time and what location the Christians lived in, the persecutions they suffered varied from just apathy where nobody really cared all the way to severe persecution. And just admitting you were a Christian could get you thrown in jail or put to death. You know, Nero famously hated Christians so much that when he burned a third of the city of Rome, he blamed it on Christians, not on himself. And so as we look at the situation in the church community of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul is writing to them, and of course that's the second A of audience, the church community in the city of Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus was like a modern New York City, a modern Tokyo, a modern Hong Kong, a modern London. This was a center of many cultures com coming and going, and many different beliefs, many different languages, many different religious practices. And as a result, it was very confusing to be a Christian during this point and in this location. The city of Ephesus was on the Aegean Sea and ships would come in and bring their supplies and it would be bought, sold, and traded in the city of Ephesus. And people who were there had so many different options, so many different teachings, so many different philosophies being shared because in the Roman culture, the greatest amount of leisure a person could aspire to is to be wealthy enough to sit around in the city markets all day and to talk philosophy and talk about beliefs. This is why the Apostle Paul famously went to the Areopagus, right, the, 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 the area in, known as Mars Hill, to talk with the philosophers about the different religious beliefs and practices of the day. And so as the city of Ephesus was so wealthy, numerous people could do this, this meant that Christians had to decipher what was really right. And while Paul had set them up for success, Paul didn't stay with them. Paul left and continued on his, his journeys because that's what apostles do. Apostles start a movement and then they leave to go start another one somewhere else. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But as a result, Paul, now that he's in prison, writes to them to say, you guys aren't maturing. And that's the atmosphere of this passage, of this letter. And the letter to the Ephesians is really instructive to us today because the first half focuses on how Christians should relate to God and their relationship with Him. And the second half focuses on how they should have relationships with human beings, whether it's husbands and wives, parents and children, you know, boss and employee, right? All of these things. And so why is Paul doing this? Because he wants them to get back on track, to grow and develop in maturity in their faith. The goal of maturity is eventually autonomy, that we no longer need to be spoon-fed and taught these things. And so for accuracy, we're going to read a chunk of the passage, but I encourage you to read the whole letter because letters are meant to be read from start to finish. We don't have enough time to cover all of that in this session today. And then, of course, we're going to apply it. So before we dive in, I want to go ahead and set us up for success by giving us our big truth. Our big truth for this session is that maturity is measured by our desire for diligence. Maturity, how do we measure it? Maturity is measured by our desire for diligence. 
Those are some fancy words, James. What do those mean? Well, diligence is this idea that comes from, it's a farming term. Dilly meaning to pay attention to, to, to apply yourself to, and gente in the, in the Latin means to gather. And this idea is saying as a person is gathering in their crop, they have to be diligent. They have to pace themselves. And I remember as a kid growing up farming and, and working and living on a farm and having to work on the farm that we would have jobs that you had to pace yourself. I mean, for example, when we would bale hay, we liked square bales. Some people use the big round ones, but we bailed the square ones because we didn't have a massive herd of cattle and we didn't need the big round ones. We bailed the smaller square ones. And as the tractor with the baler would gather all of the hay into the machine to put it in a bale and wrap it up, we would go behind with a truck and trailer and we would load up all of the hay bales. And if you went too hard and you pushed too much energetically working too hard, you were going to wear out. You had to pace yourself. You had to diligently pay attention to not just where the tractor was going so you knew where to drive the truck and trailer, but also to pace yourself physically so you did not wear yourself out because bringing in the hay was a numerous day, sometimes multi-week process. This is the idea of diligence that you have to watch yourself, pace yourself, and pay attention to the situation that you're in. So how do I measure my maturity? I have to have a desire for diligence. I have to constantly keep working at it and pacing myself so I have the energy to keep going even when it gets hard, even when I get tired. That's how we measure our maturity because immature people, they quit when it gets hard. They stay where it's simple and they never progress to deeper levels. I'll give you an example of this. I used to teach uh, music lessons specifically guitar. Guitar was my, my big draw that I had for a lot of students who wanted to learn how to play guitar because they see the music videos. They see the, the people on, you know, um, you know, on TV and they hear the songs on the radio and they want to play those songs. So they get a guitar and they want to learn how. And in the beginning, man, they practice like crazy. And, but once they get about four, eight, maybe 12 chords in, and they learn how to strum some, and they learn how to play some of those songs that they like off the radio, most of them stop right there. They never develop their musical abilities to deeper levels of maturity. They never learn how to finger pick, how to flat pick, how to do solos, how to move from an acoustic sound to an electric guitar with more you know, rock and roll or move to a classical sound where you have to style, where you have to play with your fingers and play the melody and the, the, the rhythm parts all at the same time. They never develop to those more complex parts of the of playing the guitar because it's harder and it takes practice and so they stop and all they ever do is sit and they're able to just play their few chords and play songs off the radio they no longer have a desire for diligence so they no longer mature the apostle paul likens this process to our spiritual growth in ephesians chapter 4 <clears throat> He starts out with this in verse 1. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And Paul is telling them, hey, you need to live a life that's worthy of what God has called you to. That means you have to continue to grow. How do I do that? Look at verse 2. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. You see, Paul is telling them, hey, there are so many different beliefs and practices and ideas and theories going on. Quit fighting about it. Be humble. 
Don't think of yourself as better than other people. Be gentle, be kind, patient. Why? Because you love each other. You see, when you love someone, yeah, you may get frustrated, and yeah, you're going to have conflict because every even healthy relationships have conflict. Healthy relationships just solve conflict in healthy ways. And he says this in verse 3, Make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit, binding yourself together with peace. You see, peace is the absence of conflict. He's saying, hey, get rid of all this strife and all these arguing debates and all these fights that you're having because there's so many different beliefs and practices going on. The Jews want to do it one way. The Gentiles want to do it another. Some want to hold on to their traditions and others want to do new things. And the first thing we see that Paul tells us about how we can measure our spiritual maturity is that immature Christians fight over petty traditions, but mature Christians focus on bringing the kingdom. Paul is telling them, hey, quit fighting. Be humble, be kind, be gentle, be united. Why? Because you love each other. You are in this together. You're a family. And sadly, the church in America is suffering with the same problem that the church community in Ephesus had. We love to fight about tradition. That's why we have different denominations. We have different groups of Christians. Most denominations don't disagree on the basic things. Most different denominations, whether you're Lutheran, Episcopalian, Baptist, Methodist, you know, full gospel, you know, Pentecostal, whatever, Presbyterian, all these different groups, Episcopalian, all these things, we all agree by and large on who God is, that Jesus is God. We agree on salvation. We agree on the Bible. Overall, we agree on the big things of the faith. We fight over petty traditions. How should our church buildings be set up? How should our worship services happen? What acts of worship and our religious practices should we do and not do? Should we use rock bands and build auditoriums with flashing lights and stages and comfy chairs? Or should we sit in cathedrals with you know, stone walls or, or, or chapels with wooden walls and stained glass windows and pews and hymns and organs and everything in between? Should I wear suit and tie and dresses and fancy hats? Should I wear shorts and flip-flops and, and t-shirts? And what? Yeah, we fight over all these petty traditions, but mature Christians focus on bringing God's kingdom. And that's what Paul is saying is, guys, you are not maturing because you're too busy fighting. Instead, we need to be gentle and humble and united. And if you skip down, Paul actually gives the process for how this is going to happen. If you go down a little bit further, let's get to verse 4. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. He's saying, guys, you should be united because we're all focused. We should all be about the same thing. My, my mentor, when I first got into ministry, Pastor Steve McCarg, would say, keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what that Paul is telling this church community in Ephesus. Quit getting distracted by little things. Keep the main thing the main thing. So first we see that immature Christians fight over petty traditions, but mature Christians focus on bringing the kingdom. Next we see that immature Christians fixate on division. What are the things that divide us? But mature Christians focus on unity. And that's a little bit of a, uh, the same idea, just looking at it a different way, that rather than fighting over traditions... We need to be united. But here's what happens. 
immature Christians show up and all they do is complain about the things that divide us. Oh, we're so divided in our beliefs and we just will never get along. That we're divided by our race and our culture and our language and our preferences. But ultimately, those are preferences. A mature Christian focuses on unity. If you're a mature follower of Jesus, you should be able to walk into any style of worship. And while it may not be your comfort and your preference, you should be able to still worship. You should be able to still give glory to God and to, to pull a truth from the teaching time, even if it's different from you. About 10 years ago now, our wife, my wife and I, our wife, my wife and I, our family, began to get plugged into a church community that was much more charismatic than I was used to. Had a Pentecostal background, spoke in spiritual tongues, believed in the gifts of healing and prophecy, very different from the church communities I had grown up in and spent most of my life in. And in the beginning, man, I, I was pretty bothered by that. Why? Because it made me uncomfortable. But over time, while yes, there are people that take those things to an extreme and teach inappropriate things, this church community kept everything in balance. And once I got over my selfish preferences, I began to say, no, it's not about my preference, it's about God's presence, and began to have me focus on unity. So how do we do this? How do we find this unity? Well, the Apostle Paul explains that in verse 11. He says, now these are the gifts that who? Christ gave to the church. So if God is giving the gift, it must be good. He says, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. And he says this, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. All of these people, we call this the five-fold ministry of Christ. That apostles go out and start new movements. Now some people get caught up in fighting over whether we should use the word apostle or not, because we should only use that to talk about the original 12 apostles. If you don't like that, think of it as, you know, a, a person that's like a missionary, right? That they go and they start new movements, right? Uh, however, whatever phrase you want to use, like a church planter. But that's what apostles do. Apostles go out and start new movements and create new, you know, things and programs and places they didn't exist before. Prophets tell God's will or message to the church. Evangelists share the gospel with those who have never heard it. Pastors shepherd and guide church communities and teachers explain and apply the Bible properly. We need, in our immaturity, all five of those people to help equip church members and community members of the body of Christ. And he says this in verse 13, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That's all five of these gifts will be given to leaders in the body of Christ until we reach maturity. You see, when all of the body of Christ, every member is mature, there won't be a need for apostles to start new movements. There won't because people will be doing it on their own. There won't be a need for prophets to tell people God's word or message because people can find it out for themselves by their relationship with Christ. There won't be a need for evangelists because everybody will have heard the gospel. There won't be a need for pastors because people will be mature enough to shepherd themselves and keep themselves out of spiritual trouble. And there won't be a need for teachers because we'll be able to rightly learn and study the Bible ourselves. Once we are mature, we won't need these things, but, but Paul explains that this will continue until we reach maturity. 
So here's the last thing I want us to focus on, is that immature Christians, they, they refuse to work for growth, but mature Christians deepen their faith. And that's the last part that Paul teaches, and there's so much more we could go into, but I want to start applying this, that we need to understand that the culture of Christianity in America is very consumer-based, because our culture is very consumer-based. Rather than staying at home and cooking meals, we want to go to a restaurant and let somebody do it for us. Rather than washing our cars, we like to drive through the car wash and have, a, have somebody do that for us. Rather than you know, going and changing our oil. We want somebody to do that for us. Well, we don't want to, you know, now we don't even want to go to the doctor. We want to go online, fill out a survey, and then go, you know, get our medication that way. We refuse to work for growth. But the only way to grow is to work for it. If I want to become a better guitar player, I have to work for it. If I want to become a better athlete, I have to work for it. If I want to be a better student who's smarter and wiser on a subject area, I have to work for it. I have to work to deepen my level of maturity. And the same thing is true with our faith. Immature Christians refuse to work for growth. They are completely content to just sit and stay in one place week after week, year after year, until they finish this life and they go to the king to the kingdom and i wonder what god's going to have to say about us if that's all we do where's the ministry work we were supposed to do how did we invest our time talent and treasure in the kingdom did we actually get involved or did we sit back and refuse to work and only want to accept the benefits so how do we measure maturity we measure maturity by our desire for diligence we measure maturity by our desire for diligence. So as we close our time together, I want to ask you, are you working to deepen your maturity level? Are you studying the scriptures? Are you reading and, and, and getting deeper into the faith by listening to experts and learning how to judge for yourself what is appropriate and what's inappropriate? Or are you dependent on others to do all the work for you? And so as we look at this, I, I want to look at your life. Are you seeing the fruits of the Spirit in your life that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you seeing the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Or are you content to just simply sit and let somebody else do it for you? God did not call us to just become converts. He called us to become disciples. And we can measure our maturity by our desire for diligence. And my prayer for you and I as we start this new year is that we would diligently desire to seek after the things of the faith, to grow in our relationship with God, our knowledge of His Word, so that we can rightly apply it and we won't be tossed around by every new teaching. Instead, we would be able to help others in the process. So that's my prayer for you as we start the new year because we measure maturity by our desire for diligence. Be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.